Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Well, I want to invite you to join me in John chapter 12. If you are not already there, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or on your Bible app. We are continuing, as Pastor Jerry said, in our series leading up to Easter, looking at how we can have a love life like Jesus, how we can love like Jesus. And today we come to John 12, where we are going to be talking about the price of discipleship. We're going to see what it costs Christ for us to have salvation, and in turn, what it costs us to follow Jesus. And as I studied and prepared for today, Star Wars came to my mind. And I know what you're thinking. Corey, Star Wars has nothing to do with Palm Sunday. And to that I say, with Darth Vader, I find your lack of faith disturbing. Star Wars Episode 3, The Revenge of the Sith, opens... With Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker on a mission to save Chancellor Palpatine. Now, if you've never watched Star Wars and you're sitting out there thinking, I have no clue what's going on, let me catch you up really quickly on what's happening. Chancellor Palpatine is the chancellor of the Galactic Senate. This is the Senate that rules the galaxy. But by the end of this movie, he will dissolve the Senate and form the first Galactic Empire. And he will become Emperor Palpatine because he is the evil Sith Lord that the Jedi have been hunting, but they don't know who he is yet. And as the movie opens, Palpatine has been kidnapped by Count Dooku and General Grievous, two of his henchmen. But again, the Jedi don't know this yet. And the movie begins with Anakin and Obi-Wan fighting in space on a mission to save the Chancellor. And they fight their way on board the ship where he has been kidnapped. And once they get there, Anakin looks at Obi-Wan and he says, I sense Count Dooku. And Obi-Wan looks back at Anakin and he says, I sense a trap. And when Anakin asks Obi-Wan what we should do next, Obi-Wan says, spring the trap. You see, both of these new that they faced danger as they went to save Palpatine. But that didn't stop them. Because they had been sent on a mission. And to accomplish their mission, they had to face this danger. Well, 2,000 years ago, on Palm Sunday, as Jesus entered into Jerusalem... He knew what was coming. He knew the price that he was going to have to pay for our salvation. He knew that as he entered into Jerusalem, by the end of the week, he would suffer and die. But that did not stop Jesus. Because he was abandoned to the purpose of seeking And saving the lost. Because he was willing to pay the ultimate price 
to bring us salvation. You see, Jesus too was sent on a mission. And for Jesus to accomplish his mission, it meant dying for our sins. So today, as we look at John chapter 12, I want to ask us to reflect on a question. Our big idea today is a question that I want us to reflect on this morning and you to reflect on as you go throughout this week. And here is that question. Will you be like Jesus and pay the price to follow him? Will you be like Jesus and pay the price to follow him? Are you willing to follow Jesus' example and pay the price to follow him? You see, what we're going to see this morning in John chapter 12 is that Jesus knew the cost of our salvation before he came. Yet, that did not stop him. And we also see in John chapter 12, as Jesus is on his way to the cross... We see what it cost us, what it does cost us to follow him. So the question is, will you follow him? And as we dive in, I want to put a disclaimer out there. When I, I say the price of discipleship, I don't mean that we can buy salvation. I don't mean that you can earn your salvation because salvation is a free gift that comes through faith alone by the grace of God in Christ alone. But it does cost us to follow Jesus. There is something we have to give up to follow Christ. The question is, will you give that up and follow him? Let's start in verse 12 of John chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him. Shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, And that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, 
And where I am, my servant also will be. My my father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. On the Saturday before Palm Sunday, Jesus was in Bethany. Actually, the week leading up to Passion Week, he spent a lot of time in Bethany. And during Passion Week, he would go back in the evenings to Bethany. He was there the Saturday night before Palm Sunday, and he had dinner with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And John tells us that at this dinner, Mary anointed Jesus' feet with a very expensive bottle of perfume to prepare his body for burial. And then on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, Jesus journeyed from Bethany to Jerusalem. And in John 11, verse 18, we see that that was a journey of a little less than two miles. And as he goes, a great crowd gathers together to welcome him into Jerusalem. You heard Jerry talk about this crowd. It would have been made up of people that lived in Jerusalem as well as people who came to Jerusalem just to worship during the festival of Passover. And the crowd took palm branches from the palm trees that were and still are plentiful around Jerusalem. And they worshipped Jesus as he came into the city. And they worshipped him out of Psalm 118. In Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 say, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The people shout, Hosanna. We've heard this morning what that means. It's a term that means save us, Lord, or save now. It's a a call for salvation. It's a term that even we today have used in worship. And as Jesus enters, they pronounce a blessing on him and say that he is blessed. You see, they rightly call Jesus king. They honor and recognize Jesus like a king. Any earthly king that would have entered the town, they would have celebrated them in the same way. The difference is an earthly king would not have entered on a donkey. He would have come on a war horse. And a worth, uh, earthly king would have not entered to die for his people. He would have come to sit on his throne and to rule and reign. An earthly king would not have died for his subjects. You see, Jesus wasn't the kind of king or the kind of Messiah that the people expected or hoped for. The Pharisees wrongly looked at only certain parts of the Old Testament. And so they believed that the Messiah would come and rule and reign. And everything that they do, everything they say to Jesus points to him being the Messiah. They recognize who Jesus is. And at the same time, they miss him. They're looking for a political savior. They're looking for a hero to ride in and to restore Jerusalem to its former glory from the Old Testament when King David ruled. 
They're looking for a hero to come in and defeat Rome and to sit down on the throne and to rule and to reign. This is what the people expected. This is the type of savior, Messiah, that the people hoped for. They wanted a king to march into Jerusalem to raise an army and to defeat the Roman Empire. But Jesus didn't come to bring salvation from Rome. Because the Jews' greatest enemy was not the Roman Empire. Just in the same way that our greatest enemy is not a government or a political leader or some human ruler. Our greatest enemy is sin and death. And that is who Jesus came to defeat. The Jews were so focused on who they wanted the Messiah to be that they missed who he is. They were so focused on on who they wanted Jesus to be that they missed who Jesus is. Because you see, Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. Jesus is not just the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of all kings. He is a king for all people, the king of all creation. He is the only king who lays down his life for his subjects. He is a king and he is also the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He is a humble king who gains his victory through humility. He's a king who came to proclaim peace to the nations. And in verse 15 of John 12, John quotes Zechariah chapter 9 as Jesus rides into town on a donkey and he shows his readers exactly what type of king Jesus is from Zechariah chapter 9. Starting in verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What type of king is Jesus? He's a righteous king. He's a victorious king. He's a humble king. And Zechariah goes on in verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I want to ask you this morning. What comes to your mind when you think of Jesus? You see at the bottom of your worship guide, I've put that question there for you this week and I encourage you during your family worship time this week or during your family prayer time or your family Bible study or just family dinner to gather the family around and to discuss this question. What comes to your mind when you think of Jesus? Is he just a good person? In your mind, was he just a good teacher? Is he someone you hear about at church on Sunday mornings or maybe you occasionally read about when you open your Bible? Or is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Is he your King? A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes into your mind when you think of King Jesus? You see, what you think of Him determines how you respond to Him. If you think of Him as just another good teacher or another good person, you're probably not very likely to follow Him. But if you think of Him as King, Lord, and Messiah, well, then that determines how you obey Him. What you think of Him determines whether you obey Him or deny Him. So what comes to your mind when you think of Jesus? It was only after his death and resurrection that the disciples and the rest of the crowd understood the significance of Jesus riding in on a donkey. In verse 16 of John 12, John tells us, At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. The crowds flock to Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. So much so that in verse 19, the Pharisees lament at his growing, growing fame. The crowd that was there the day that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead has gone out and continued to tell people about this sign, about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And because of that, an even larger crowd has now come to see who Jesus is and to follow him. And in verse 19, I imagine the Pharisees just throwing up their hands in frustration because they can't stop his ministry. They can't stop his growing fame. And they see the people that used to follow them going out to follow Jesus, and they're frustrated. Starting in verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The irony here in verse 19 is that when the Pharisees say the whole world has gone after Jesus, they're talking about the Jewish world. They're saying, look at how all the Jews, all the people who used to follow us are now going out to follow Jesus. But Jesus is not just a savior for the Jews. And what we see at the end of our passage this morning is that Jesus says as he is lifted up, he draws the world to himself. The Pharisees did not realize how right they were in verse 19. Because Jesus came to draw all of the world to himself. They, they spoke prophetically in verse 19, even though they didn't know it. And we see their prophecy begin to be fulfilled in the very next verse. In verse 20, we see that the world is coming to Jesus. We see the beginning of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9 begin to come true in verse 20. As the Greeks... Come to see Jesus. Now, these Greeks were not necessarily from Greece. The term that's used here for Greeks means Gentiles, non-Jews, who were from somewhere in the world where Greek was spoken. 
So these Greeks could have been from a town close to Bethsaida. Maybe that's why they went to Philip and asked Philip to see Jesus. We don't know. All we know about them is they are Gentiles. They aren't Jews. They're in Jerusalem to worship and they want to see Jesus. Starting in verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. You see, the Greeks represent a turning point in John's gospel. Up until now, up until this point, in verse 23, Jesus' hour has been coming. John has been talking about a future event, looking to the future event of Jesus' hour. The hour of his suffering for our sin. The hour of his death and resurrection. The hour of his glorification. Up until John 12, 23, the hour has been coming. But now as these Greeks arrive on the scene, Jesus says his hour has come. The time of his suffering, his persecution, his death for our sin and his resurrection. That hour has come as these Greeks arrive on the scene. And in verse 23, Jesus doesn't reply directly to these Greeks. But he replies to what their request represents. And I love the way that Jesus does this because as he replies to them, he teaches about his death using a parable. And this is such a beautiful parable. It shows why Jesus was such a great teacher. In one verse, he uses a parable that an agricultural society would have immediately understood. And he also shares the gospel at the same time. In verse 23 and 24. Jesus replied, this hour, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is this kernel of wheat here. And just as a kernel of wheat produces much, his life, his death produces life in many. His death brings life to all who will follow him, to all who will surrender and put their faith in him and follow after Jesus, to all who will surrender to him. See, this parable is the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, our sinless Savior, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Even though he was equal with God, he stepped down out of heaven, put on human flesh to die in our place. To pay the price for our sins so that we can have life. So that you can have life if you will put your faith in Jesus. If you will repent of your sins, turn away from your sin, and follow after him, you will be saved. And then in verses 25 and 26, after hearing the gospel in verse 24, Jesus tells us the price or the cost of following him. Our salvation cost 
his life. There's also a cost for us to follow Jesus. He lays out here what we must do to receive eternal life. And in a nutshell, we must love Christ more than we love our own life. We must give up our life in this world and follow him. Here's how we are going to apply this to ourselves today. Die to yourself and follow Jesus. Die to yourself and follow Jesus. That begins with a moment of surrender. A moment where you repent from your sins, you turn away from your sins, you turn to Jesus and you begin to follow after him. If you're a believer this morning, maybe right now, you can remember that moment in your life where you initially surrendered to Jesus, when you put your faith in him and followed after him. For me, it was a junior, while I was a junior at UNC Charlotte. Following following Jesus begins with a moment of surrender where we repent of our sins and turn away from them and follow him. But it doesn't stop there. Following Jesus is not just a moment of surrender. Listen to how Luke describes this in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is speaking in verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world or loses and loses or forfeits himself? You see, following Jesus begins with a moment of surrender. But then every day after that, Jesus says, we pick up our cross, we die to ourselves, we choose every day to surrender to Jesus, to surrender our life to Jesus and follow after him. And this is what it looks like. It looks like coming to Jesus with open hands and saying, Jesus, here are my finances. Do with them what you will. Jesus, here is my marriage. Do with it what you will. Jesus, here is my dating life. Use it for your glory. Jesus, here are my children. Do with them what you will. Jesus, here are my friendships. Here is my career. Here is everything that I am, every decision that I will make. Use it for your glory and the greatness of your name. It's a daily surrender to Jesus of everything. You see, it's an unconditional surrender. A lot of times we talk about unconditional love and we have an understanding of what that is. But when I say it's an unconditional surrender, I mean that you come to Jesus and you surrender with no conditions. Surrender means to give up. This is not a negotiation with Jesus of Jesus, I'll give you this part of my life, but this over here I want to stay in control of. It means Jesus hears everything. You are the Lord. You are the king of my life. And I surrender it to you. Sometimes it's a moment by moment surrender. It's not even a daily surrender. In the difficult seasons of life, when God is doing something that we don't understand, or we don't understand why God is allowing us to walk through something, 
Sometimes moment by moment, we have to come to him and just say, Lord, I I surrender to you. Here it is. I give it back to you. Use it for your will and your glory and the greatness of your name. That's what it cost us to follow Jesus. This past Sunday night, our students were in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul writes from prison and he says that he's a prisoner of Christ. And in our small group, we were, we were talking about what does it mean to be a prisoner of Christ? What does it sur- mean to surrender to Jesus? And I love, one of our students said, I'm learning to trust Jesus with my school and with my anxiety. They said, at the beginning of the year, I struggled a lot more than I am now, but I'm learning to trust Jesus. And I thought, what a beautiful picture of surrender and saying, hey, I don't have it all figured out. Church, I don't have it all figured out. We're not going to always or ever have everything figured out. But I love the picture that this student painted of, I don't have it figured out, but I'm trusting Jesus with it. I'm, I'm giving it back to him. I'm surrendering it to him and letting him lead me. That's what it cost us to follow Jesus. And it would be easy for us to think that's a really high price. It would be easy for us to come to this passage and this scripture and think, man, that's a really high price to pay to give up my life for Jesus. Jesus gave up his life for us to have life. And if still you think, yeah, Corey, that's a really big price. You're asking me to give up everything. In verse 26, Jesus shows us what we receive as we follow him. Not only do we receive eternal life, but he says his servants will be with him where he is. And his father will honor them. There is nothing in this life, in this world, that can come close to comparing to what we receive when we surrender our life to Jesus and follow Him. Starting back in verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. And then Jesus turns and he prays. His soul is troubled here because he knows what's coming. This word for troubled is a verb that signifies revulsion or horror or agitation. Jesus knows that he is going to suffer And he is going to die, but even worse than that, for the only time in history on the cross, Jesus experiences separation from the Father. He knows that that is coming, and his soul is troubled. So he turns and he prays. And I want you to notice, Jesus doesn't run away from this. 
Jesus doesn't use his divinity to say, no, I'm not going to do this. He doesn't use his power and authority to say, I'm going to call legions of angels to save me from this. He submits to the will of the Father for the glory of the Father because this was the reason why he came. This was the reason why Jesus came to draw all people to himself and to glorify the Father. Now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus willingly submitted to the will of the Father to bring glory to the Father. To pay the price for our salvation. Throughout his earthly life and his earthly ministry, Jesus focused on bringing glory to the Father. We see this throughout the Gospel of John. If you go back and see the signs and the wonders that Jesus performed, it was to bring glory to the Father. And now here as he's going to the cross, he prays, Father, glorify your name. If the King of Kings who we will all bow down to one day, focused on glorifying someone else, focused on glorifying His Heavenly Father, we should too. So I ask you this morning, will you be like Jesus and pay the price to follow Him? Will you follow Jesus' example and focus more on the glory of the Father than your own life? Will you surrender your life and follow Jesus? I want to give us some time this morning just to reflect and to pray on your own where you are and just to take some time and ask the Lord, is there an area in your life that you are not surrendering to Him? Is there somewhere in your life that you need to surrender? Maybe for the first time you need to surrender your life to Jesus. As TJ and Liz come back up, take some time alone with the Father and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal anything in your life that you need to surrender to Him. And after a couple of minutes, a couple of our elders are going to come and pray for us. But let me pray for you and then you alone with the Lord reflect on what we've seen from John 12 today. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we thank you that you were willing to pay the ultimate price for our salvation. Lord, in these moments as we seek you, as we reflect on what you have spoken to us today, we ask that you would reveal any 
areas in our lives where we need to surrender and repent and follow after you. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.